came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, I get confused. Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 24th of May, 2018. Each fortnight, we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today, our feature interview is with Dr. Jesse Christensen, who started out in rural Queensland in Australia and is now a NASA staff scientist and working on exoplanet discovery with the just-launched TESS mission. And that's followed by University Toxicology Lecturer, Amateur Astronomer and Astrophotographer, Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame, who will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the evening, night and morning skies for the next two weeks. And we finish up with some Astro News highlights, bringing you the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. Without further ado, we cross over 17 time zones to Pasadena in California to speak with Dr. Christensen. Hello, Jesse. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Jesse Christensen. Dr. Christensen is a NASA staff scientist at the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, USA. She has just participated in the successful launch of the fabulous TESS mission, the search for planets around other stars using the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which was launched just two weeks ago. Have you caught up on some sleep, Jessie? <laughs> I have, but it has been quite a whirlwind, I'll say that. Very good. Now, before we get to exoplanets, Let's go back a little bit, and can you tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place, please, Jessie? Where did you grow up, and did you have dark skies there in your backyard as a kid? I did, actually. I grew up in a small town called Peak Crossing, which is just outside of Brisbane in Queensland, and the sky was very dark. It was a beautiful sight for a kid to grow up and fall in love with the sky. I remember lying on the trampoline on summer nights and looking up at the constellations and just, you know, falling in love with everything I saw. Fantastic. Now, tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? Yeah, so at that time I had no idea that you could be paid to study the sky. That just seems like hitting the jackpot. So what I really wanted to do was to be a fighter pilot because the town that I grew up in is near the RAF Amberley base. Yep. So I got to see the F-111s flying over. So I really, really wanted to be a fighter pilot. That's all I ever thought about. But then at the end of high school, they told me my eyesight was too bad to join the armed forces. And suddenly I didn't know what to do. 
Fantastic. Okay, so after your high school graduation, you did your BSc at Griffith University in Brisbane, then you moved down to the Australian National University, the ANU in Canberra, to do an honours year. Then you worked as a postgrad assistant while you worked on your PhD over at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Your successful thesis was on the search for extrasolar planets using data from the Vulcan South Antarctic Planet Finder and the half-metre automated patrol telescope at the famous Siding Spring Observatory up in the Warrumbungle Ranges in New South Wales. First of all, what piqued your interest in extrasolar planets in the first place? Right, so this was about 15 years ago now, and exoplanets were just starting to be discovered. So these are planets orbiting other stars. So it was this brand new, burgeoning field of discovery. And, you know, when I was growing up and looking at the sky, I loved looking at the planets. You could see Mars and Saturn and Jupiter, and they seemed so tangible. So the idea of finding these things around other stars was incredibly appealing to me. Wow, okay. So that's fabulous. So now might be a good time to get stuck into the science of your episode here. Could you tell us why you used the Vulcan South Antarctic Planet Finder? And why would an instrument be set up way down in Antarctica to search for exoplanets? That's a great question. So at the South Pole, it's night time for six months at a time. So if you're searching for basically anything in the sky, being able to stare at that patch of sky for six months without, you know, the stupid sun coming up every day and interrupting <laughs> your observations is a great advantage. Fantastic. Could you also tell our listeners about the transit method and what light curves are? Right. So the way that we find planets, the method that I've been using for my whole career is the transit method. So the transit method relies on the fact that some exoplanets are lined up just right so that they go between us and their host star, the star that they're orbiting. When they do this, they block some of the light. So if you've ever seen a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse, that's the shadow of the Earth going in front of the moon or the moon going in front of the sun. It blocks the light. And that's what we're doing. We're measuring the brightness of stars over and over and over again and looking for the dips that are caused by planets going in front of the star. So those are light curves, light curves that we present the measurements of the stars that we measure over and over again, and we search those light curves for dips. Okay, now, this question I didn't send to you, but it derived from that one, and you might want to answer it, or I might end up editing this out. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) Does that mean that some suns out there may have planets orbiting them, but the planets don't pass in front of it. So are we missing a lot of suns simply by the fact that the planets don't pass in front of them? Yes. So most planets actually don't transit their star. It's a very chance alignment. Only a few percent of planets actually go between us and the star. But we have a pretty good handle on what fraction of stars should have transiting planets. So what we do is we count how many we see and then we correct for that value. We multiply it by how many we think we get to get the total population. That is awesome. Okay, thanks, Dr. Christensen. So after your PhD, you did a couple of years as a postdoc research fellow at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Boston. How did that move come about and did you experience many culture shocks in that transition? 
Right. So Australia is a pretty small country in the scheme of things. So we have a, a lovely and small astronomy community, but we don't cover all of the different topics in astronomy in great depth. So towards the end of my thesis, one of my fellow grad students asked me, what's your dream job? What would you love to do next? And I said, I want to work with David Charbonneau at Harvard. So at that time, David Charbonneau was an incredibly huge name in the exoplanet field. He had been one of the first people to find transiting planets, one of the first people to use those observations to analyze the planet's atmospheres. It was all very exciting, and it was all happening at Harvard. So I had decided this was it. This is where I wanted to go. And literally a month after I said that, he advertised a position working in his lab, and I applied for it, and I got it, and it was literally a dream come true. That sounds like a fabulous launch pad for you, Jesse. Then it's 5,000 kilometres west over to NASA's Ames Research Centre in Mountain View, California, and the SETI Institute, where you were a staff scientist at the Kepler Science Office. Let's go science again, and can you tell us about the Kepler instrument, how many exoplanets it discovered, and how it kept on sciencing even after it ran into problems with its reaction wheels? So the NASA Kepler mission is a one-meter telescope that we launched into space in 2009. So as I said earlier, the way you find these planets is you monitor stars over and over again waiting for this. So Kepler looked at this one field of sky, a little patch of sky about the size of your hand, if you hold your hand down on the sky, over and over again for four years. In that field, it monitored 200,000 stars every 30 minutes, and we just waited. We waited to find these dips. Yep. So Kepler found nearly 3,000 planets in those 200,000 stars. And what that told us, you know, as we've already said, we don't see all the planets because most of them don't transit. If we saw 3,000 out of only 200,000 stars, what Kepler told us is that planets are everywhere. Planets are extremely common throughout the galaxy. If you pick a random star in the sky, it's more likely that that star has planets than doesn't have planets. And that's a huge discovery out of the Kepler mission. Awesome. One of the things that happened to the spacecraft was that it had two reaction wheel failures. So the reaction wheels is what the spacecraft used to keep pointing at that 200,000 stars. It needs three in order to work, and we launched it with four because NASA likes redundancy. But then over the years, two of them broke, which meant we were only left with two, and we couldn't keep pointing at that field of stars, that original field of 200,000 stars. But the very clever engineers at Ball Aerospace, who were the ones who built the spacecraft in the first place, realized that if you used the solar radiation pressure from the sun as the equivalent of the third wheel to keep pushing in a certain direction, then you could balance that force against the other two reaction wheels and keep the spacecraft pointed, not in the original direction, but in a new direction. So we actually started a new survey called K2, which is also looking for planets, but in a different part of the sky. That is beautiful science. Okay, so... Now you're a staff scientist at the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute at CIT in Pasadena, and you've been working on the TESS mission. Can you tell us about the development of TESS, the differences between Kepler and TESS, what is TESS's special orbit, and how the mission is going right now as we speak? So yes, TESS is the mission that just launched two weeks ago that I'm very excited about, where Kepler was a mission that looked at a very small patch of the sky for a long period of time. Tess is looking at the entire sky, but tiling at one patch of the sky. Yep. So, sorry, but tiling at one patch at a time. 
So each little touch it's going to look at for 27 days. And that means you're not going to find the types of planets that Kepler was looking for, which were planets like the Earth. Yep. But you're going to find very hot planets because they're going to orbit their star very closely. So that's really exciting. And the main difference between Kepler and TESS is the, is the amount of sky that they'll be looking at. TESS is in a very special orbit. It's very exciting. It's the first time this orbit's been tried, so everybody cross your fingers that the math works out. It's in a lunar resonance. So for every time the moon goes around the Earth, TESS will go around twice. And it's in a very elongated orbit. So instead of being a circle centered on the Earth, it's a very, very long oval where the Earth is at one end of the oval. What that means is that the spacecraft spends most of its time quite, quite far away from the Earth and all of the radiation fields that are around the Earth, which can be bad for spacecraft. And then once every two weeks, it comes very close to Earth and we download all of the data, and then it swings back out again and starts taking more data. So it's this kind of interplay between the spacecraft and the moon that keeps it in this orbit, in this resonance. Wow. Dancing. That's right. And <laughs> how the mission's going right now... We're very excited. We're going through the commissioning phase at the moment, so we're busy turning all the switches and making sure everything's turning on and everything's able to work. So far, everything's checking out great, which is very exciting. We still have a few more maneuvers we need to go through to get to that final orbit, but so far, everything's on track. Fantastic. Would you like to tell us about the team you're working with, what your work entails, and what a recent week has looked like and felt like for you, please? Sure. So the mission is led out of MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but the actual collaborators are spread across the country and even across the world. We have international partners as well. So my role, I help coordinate the additional observations that need to be taken. So when you see these dips in the light curve, what you have is a planet candidate. You don't know yet that it's really a planet because there are other things that can cause the same kind of dip. So what we do is we go and take additional observations with other instruments, other spectrographs, we take different types of measurements, and we finally decide yes or no, it's a planet or not. So my role is I'm on the steering committee of the group that is coordinating this huge effort across the world to follow up the thousands of candidates we're expecting to get out of test. A recent week, well, one of the things I love about astronomy is that no two weeks are the same. Yep. This morning, I was at a hospital in Pasadena with an inflatable planetarium putting on an outreach show for the sick kids in the hospital, which was very exciting. Then I rushed back to my desk to work on this referee report, which is due this week. So I, there's a paper that another author has submitted, which needs to be reviewed. So that's due this week. Then I have a student who sent me a draft of a paper that I also need to read. And then I have my own paper that I need to write, which I just started emailing co-authors about yesterday. Fantastic. A lot of Australians have been following your test mission and it's great to know that you're over there. Our CSIRO scientists and technicians up at the Deep Space Network at Tidbinbilla near Canberra have been having a fabulous time acquiring the links with TESS and exchanging data with it. When do you expect to get that first tranche of data from TESS? What happens to that data? And when you find these planets using TESS, what happens then? Right. So the first bunch of data is going to be taken during this initial commissioning period. There's a 60-day commissioning period, which includes a test orbit, a checkout science orbit. So we'll have one, one of those orbits that I talked about, one lap around the Earth where we practice doing science, and then we look at it and see what we found. So if that looks good, 
I think we'll have our first planet just out of the commissioning data. We'll, we'll already have 10,000 stars that we'll have looked at for two weeks, which is very, very exciting. We'll be releasing that commissioning data on a longer time scale, so you won't see the first planets in 60 days, because, again, we'll have to go and look at them with some more observations, and we have to write the paper, and it has to go through the referee process. Science is much slower than I think people, than perhaps your listeners, give it credit for, unfortunately. The first big public release of all of the data that tests will take is expected in December this year. Yep. And what about the follow-up? Do you go and have a more intense look at some of your candidates? Right, so there's a whole bunch of different observations we need to take. One of the things we need to do is to go look at the star that's showing the dip in much more detail. So TESS, because it's looking at so much of the sky at the same time, doesn't have very good resolution, which means that stars all blur together. So what we need to do is go and look at with an instrument with much, much better resolution and see if we can pick out which of the stars is the one that has the dip. And if the dip is still planet-sized when you work out which dip it is, then you need to go and find the properties of that star. Is it one star or is it a binary system with two stars? Is it a giant star, in which case whatever is causing the dip is probably another star instead of a planet? So there's all of these types of observations you can take to confirm that it's a planet. Once you know it's a planet, then you can start doing some really exciting things. You can measure its mass, which gives you the density, and then you know whether it's made of rock or gas or ice. You can start examining its atmosphere and see what the atmosphere is made of. Does it have methane or carbon dioxide or oxygen in it? You can look at the structure of the atmosphere. Is it cloudy? Is it hazy? Does it have a temperature inversion like we see on the Earth? All sorts of exciting things once you have the planets in hand. That's just beautiful science, Dr. Christensen. Can you tell us what else you're doing now in California and what are you looking forward to in the near future? So I'm still working on Kepler data. I feel kind of bad. Kepler's going to get completely neglected in the wake of tests. So we're still trying to turn those 3,000 planets into an occurrence rate, which means the goal of Kepler is to find out how common planets like the Earth are. So planets like the Earth means rocks the size of Earth that are the right temperature for liquid water around stars like the Sun. We want to know if Earths are common or if they're rare. So now we know planets are common, but specifically planets like the Earth, how common are they? So that's the calculation I'm working on at the moment, which is really exciting. I'm hoping I don't get too distracted by shiny new test planets. (laughs) One of the things I'm looking forward to in the future is the launch of the NASA James Webb Space Telescope. So that's going to be the successor to the Hubble mission. And once we have all these really exciting planets from TESS, JWST will be the instrument that will tell us the most about their atmospheres. It'll be able to give us the most in-depth look at their composition and their structure and their temperature, all these exciting things. Just fantastic. Now, we know that being a scientist can involve some exhilarating times, like most recently for you, some intense disappointments and some very long hours. What helps you stay sane and on top of things, Jessie? <laughs> so before I had kids, I had hobbies and I did things in free time. <laughs> now I have two small children. I have three-year-old twin toddlers which I'm sure you can imagine takes up every potential three seconds that I have. But at the end of the day, going into the daycare and seeing their smiling faces as they run up to me and shout, Mama, Mama, that's what keeps me sane. That's the best moment of the day. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, the mic is all yours, Jesse, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education, in equity, in outreach, in 
our quest for knowledge or space. That's a really good opportunity. Thanks, Brenton. So one of the things I feel quite strongly about is the representation of women and other underrepresented minorities, such as women of colour, um, so black women or Latina women or you know, native indigenous women, in fields like astronomy and the other natural sciences. And there are so many systemic barriers to their advancement in the field. So just making sure that I reach out to young girls, like one of my favorite things is just to talk to young girls about science and say, this is achievable, that you can do this, how can I help you? Like connecting people with internships, connecting people with fellowships, trying to see what we can do to just move people through the pipe because it's so easy to lose amazing scientists just because of biases against them that people don't even recognize. So that's what I feel really strongly about, and uh, I'm glad I have the opportunity to help people at this point. Exactly, and those points are echoed in our diversity and interview policies that we've got here at Astrophys. Thank you very much. So right now, we invite our listeners to follow at Aussie Astronomer on Twitter. You'll find Jesse Christensen on Twitter at Aussie Astronomer and follow her fabulous journey and NASA's exoplanet search on Twitter. That's at, at NASA underscore Tess. And thank you so much, Dr. Jesse Christensen, exoplanet hunter extraordinaire. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show, Brendan. Thank you. Have a great evening. I hope you knock off work soon and get home to the kids. Yeah, half an hour. Yay. <laughs> awesome. Time for cuddles. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much, Brendan. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thank you. Great to be speaking with you again. And a pleasure to be speaking with you too. Also good to know that you're going to be ready to do an Ian Astro Blog Musgrave episode soon. What will your theme be? My theme will be low-cost astrophotography using space satellites. Fantastic. That's very good. I hope people will be very excited about what they can do with the imaging systems that are already out there in the sky. Beautiful. Okay, um, well, tell us, Ian. What's up in the sky for the next week? What's up in the sky for the next week? Well, we've still got lots of things happening. The sky is a very busy place. Venus, of course, is taking quite a place in the evening sky now. Venus is, in fact, so bright that you can see it just on sunset. I proved this last night when I was walking along the beach. From the moment the sun disappeared below the horizon, you could easily see Venus, providing you knew where to look, of course, I was guided by the moon. So if you're not exactly sure where Venus is, it may take a little bit of hunting around. But Venus is certainly bright enough to be easily seen. There were some lovely photos on the internet over the last couple of days of Venus and the crescent moon. Oh, yeah, that, that was absolutely beautiful. There was some fantastic stuff, especially when it was really close uh, a couple of days ago. So we'll have to wait until next month to be able to see something like that again and Venus is climbing higher and higher into the sky it's getting visible later and later so now Venus is easily visible above the horizon 
it's easily visible for a, for at least an hour after sunset. And if you've got a, a nice flat horizon, you can potentially see Venus for up to an hour and a half after the sun sets into, into truly dark skies. Yep. Uh, for me, uh, because I live close to the ocean and Venus is setting over the ocean, people who live close to the beach where the moon sets will be familiar with the concept of the ladder of the moon. This is the reflected light of the setting moon that is uh, broken up by the waves, so it looks like you've got this ladder leading up to the moon. You get the same sort of thing with Venus. Venus is so bright that if you can see its reflection on the water. Even now, if you find yourself in a nice pond or lake, you can easily photograph Venus and its reflection in these still bodies of water. So that's something really nice to do. And you'll have plenty of time to do that over the coming weeks while Venus is quite bright. And I'll revisit this a couple of uh, times again, I think, just to reinforce it, that you can do a very amazing things with photography with Venus with just a little bit of thought and even a halfway decent camera. We've talked before about phone cameras and how they're becoming so sophisticated. You can take very good astrophotography images with them. Uh, so it's, it's potentially within the, the grasp of anyone who has a halfway decent mobile phone camera. Fabulous. I mentioned last week that Venus is climbing towards the cluster M34, and by the time this goes to where Venus will be a, l- a little bit to one side of the cluster, but it will still be interesting to look at again as Venus is climbing higher. These things will be more visible. So the cluster is nominally visible to the unaided eye, but because the it's relatively low to the horizon, you'll be seeing it best with binoculars. By the time this goes out to air, Venus will pass the cluster but they'll still be visible together in binoculars. And then something to look forward to in the coming weeks is Venus heading towards the Beehive Cluster. That's a little bit of a way off, but still something to keep in mind. The Beehive Cluster is an iconic unaided eye cluster, which you'll still need binoculars to see, given the lowness to the horizon, but Venus going through the Beehive Cluster would be quite nice. So we can watch Venus leave M35 behind as it climbs up through towards Gemini. So that's the the early evening action. Early evening to mid-evening is Jupiter. Jupiter is past opposition. Opposition is when the Earth is directly between the Sun and the planet we're observing. So that's when the planet is, from our point of view, biggest and brightest. However, even though Jupiter's past opposition, it doesn't decrease radically in size unlike Mars. So it's still beautiful. It's now... Uh, in very good position to be watching in telescopes from early evening until late evening. There's been some excellent photos of Jupiter and its moons recently. Yes, they have, and the moon's doing some really nice dancing about, so you'll be able to see some excellent transits. And Even if the, the moon's telescope or binoculars are so small, you can't see the moons pass in front of Jupiter. You know, it's a medium-large large telescope. You can still see the moons form beautiful patterns, and you can also see the moons when they go into eclipse from Jupiter's shadow. At the moment, because uh, Jupiter's almost directly in line with us in the sun, Jupiter's shadow doesn't extend far beyond Jupiter, so they will wink out quite close to Jupiter. But later on, as the angle increases, you'll be able to see the moons wink out a bit of a distance away from Jupiter, and that will be very interesting to watch in any device. Wow. 
Now, Jupiter is currently in Libra, and it's not close to anything exciting, but you may watch it coming closer and closer to the bright stars of Libra, Alpha Libre, which also goes by the melophonious name of Zunal Zunali. As you watch, it will come closer and closer over the, over the coming days, and on the 27th and 28th, Jupiter will be bracketed by the almost full moon. This time it's also closest to zoomal googly, so in small binoculars, the, the zoomal googly is a, a, a double star, easily resolvable in binoculars, and it'll look quite nice. So we've dealt with Jupiter. Saturn is still looking bright and beautiful. It comes to opposition very shortly. In fact, uh, it comes into opposition in June. So it will be biggest and brightest shortly after this episode goes to air. And so it will be an excellent observing from now till several weeks from now. In fact, it will be excellent observing for several months. Saturn's moons are not so obvious as Jupiter's moons, but its largest moon, Titan, can be seen in even small telescopes and you can watch it perambulating around Saturn over excessive nights. Saturn has been very close to the lobular cluster M25 and it remains uh, within binocular distance and wild-field telescope distance. It won't be dramatic, but it will look very nice located in its field. I'll also remind everyone that it's only a couple of binocular fields below the Trippin Nebula and the Lagoon Nebula. So even though you won't see any detail of Saturn in in, uh, binoculars, it's in such a lovely position, it's worthwhile scanning around the planet to look at all the beautiful things around it. And one thing that you may not be aware that's close by at the moment is the asteroid 4 Vesta. Oh, yeah. Four Vesta is mostly famous because it's the second largest of the minor planets and uh, has been considered to be uh, perhaps a dwarf planet, unlike Ceres, which is definitely in the dwarf planet region. Vesta was also visited by the Dawn spacecraft. Uh, Dawn is now uh, orbiting Ceres and giving us some excellent views of that uh, amazing little world. But Vesta is uh, one of the few asteroids that can be readily seen in, in binoculars. In fact, Vesta, this year, Vesta at opposition, uh, which is not too far off, it's opposition in July, Vesta will be bright enough to be seen with the unaided eye if you're in the dark sky location and you know exactly where to look. Wow. At the moment, though, Vesta's really easily visible in binoculars. And Vesta's right next to the open cluster M24, and by the time time we uh, go to air, it'll be about halfway up the cluster. And it will uh, over the coming weeks, it will uh, it will uh, glide past uh, the cluster and heading towards another open cluster, M23. M23 uh, is not as spectacular as uh, M24, uh, but uh, it will be an interesting uh, thing to uh, to watch. Vesta is uh, about as bright as the brightest stars in M24. So without a good star chart, um, you might have to just you might have to watch uh, over a couple of nights to see Vesta move, and it will definitely move substantially between each night as you watch. So that's something really interesting to to uh, watch to see this little world skimming away through the sky. Fantastic. 
And so that, that's, that, that's the uh, most of the, of course, we've got our friend Mars is becoming easier and easier to see, although at the moment it's uh, heading away from the other planets rather than moving towards them. Uh, Mars at the moment isn't anywhere interesting in the sense that there's uh, no uh, nice clusters or uh, other objects close by it. But Mars is becoming bigger and bigger as we speak. In small telescopes, it should be readily resolvable to a disk. I'll again remind people that this is going to be the best opposition of Mars for some time, and that the, uh, the Mars will be uh, excellent at even small telescopes. And we've, we're seeing some really nice images of Mars coming out from the amateur community right now. So Mars is looking really good. You should be able to, if you've got a halfway decent telescope, you should be able to pick up some uh, markings on it. At the very least, you should be able to pick up the South Polar Cap. Excellent. That's basically the evening. Of course, Saturn and Mars will be best in telescopes in the mornings. But our friend Mercury, Mercury is sinking towards the horizon. Yep. And this is probably the, the last week we will get to see Mercury at a reasonable altitude. Mercury has been an obvious half-moon shape for the last couple of weeks, but now it's achieving a definite gibbous shape. Over the next week, it will rapidly head towards the horizon, and for most people who do not have very flat horizons, it will no longer be a, a helpful telescopic object. And, and uh, by the beginning of, of June, Mercury will be too close to the horizon to see, and it won't, won't be until the middle or, uh, of June or, or later on in June that Mercury will be high enough for us to see in the evening sky and where it will be a very excellent evening object. And so that's the planets at the moment. That's fantastic, Ian. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? Indeed I do, and that tangent is lasers. It's interesting the degree to which lasers have made it into astronomy. We use them for a whole range of things now. You've probably seen on the internet some rather beautiful images of laser beams with, with large observatories where they what they do, they use the laser beam as an artificial star. Yep. And um, by, by observing the wobbles in the image of the laser beam, they're able to change the surface of the mirror with, uh, with these actuators to cancel out the wobbling of, of the atmosphere. This, is, this, this I always find is completely amazing that they have the ability to do this in, in real time and produce that fantastically clear images on the basis of following this, this little dot. When we, think, when we uh, think of lasers, we think of the science fiction lasers that are used to burn holes in things. <laughs> but the way lasers are entered into, the, into science in so many ways and into astronomy. So the image we I painted above of the, uh, of the lasers being fired into, into space so we can use them as artificial stars and correct for, for atmospheric turbulence. That is stunning technology. It's used quite a lot by amateurs too. We now have laser guidance for pointing your telescopes. So you use lasers to have an accurate range finder. We use lasers to collimate the mirrors of our telescopes. And we also, one day, we use lasers to point out interesting objects in the sky. So when we think of, of lasers, we, we tend to think of them either as being these science fiction things or as uh, these incredibly complex things as part of 
uh, high-end uh, telescopes. But really, lasers have been incorporated into amateur astronomy in a, in a huge range of ways that we don't really appreciate. This, this technology is now incorporated into amateur astronomy in a, in a wide variety of ways that we would not imagine. That's fantastic, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been great speaking with you again. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's been a fantastic sharing the knowledge of our wonderful skies. Good night, Ian. And now for our Astrophys News Roundup. First up from China Daily. Four days ago, China launched a relay satellite as the first step in the groundbreaking Shangi 4 lunar mission. The satellite, named Chia Chao, a legendary bridge in the Milky Way, was lifted into space atop a Long March 4C carrier rocket from the Sichang Satellite Launch Centre in Sichuan Province. Chechao has been placed into an Earth-Moon transfer orbit and has started a journey towards a halo orbit around the Earth-Moon Lagrangian Point 2, a gravitationally stable spot located 455,000 kilometres from Earth beyond the far side of the Moon. From this orbit, it will relay communication signals between Earth and the Shangi-4 lunar probe that is scheduled to land on the Moon around year's end. Shechao weighs more than 400 kilograms and has a design life of three years. The satellite has an umbrella antenna with a diameter of nearly 5 metres, enabling it to transfer data from Chang'e 4 to ground control in real time. Chang'e 4's lunar probe will be unable to directly communicate with ground controllers on Earth due to its position on the far side of a moon, so it must have a relay satellite to transmit signals. The relay satellite is also equipped with a low-frequency radio spectrometer developed by Dutch scientists to help scientists listen to the deeper reaches of the cosmos, as well as a small lunar optical imaging detector. China plans to launch Chang'e 4's probe itself later this year and land it on the far side of a moon. The Chang'e 4 mission will enable scientists to take advantage of the far side's shield against Earth's interference to make clearer observations into deep space. In addition to Chinese equipment, Chang'e 4 will also carry scientific equipment developed by the Netherlands, Sweden, Germany and Saudi Arabia. Also coming out from China via Matt Williams in Universe Today, a new hypothesis to explain FRBs. Fast radio bursts, as featured in three of our previous episodes with Dr Emily Petrov, Dr JP McCourt and Dr Laura Dreesen, have fascinated astronomers ever since the first one was detected in 2007. The first event was named the Lorimer Burst after its discoverer, Duncan Lorimer. In radio astronomy, this phenomena, FRB, refers to transient radio pulses coming from distant cosmological sources, which typically just last a few milliseconds. Over two dozen events have been discovered since 2007, and scientists are still not sure what causes them. Though theories range from exploding stars and black holes to pulsars and magnetars. However, according to a new study by a team of Chinese astronomers, 
FRBs may be linked to crusts forming around strange stars. According to this model, it is the collapse of these crusts that lead to high-energy bursts that can be seen light years away. The study, titled Fast Radio Bursts from a Collapse of Strange Star Crusts, recently appeared in the Astrophysical Journal. The team was led by Yui Zhang of the School of Astronomy and Space Science in Nanjing University. As they state in their study, all previous attempts to explain FRBs have been unable to resolve where these strange phenomena come from. What's more, no counterparts in other wave bands have been detected for non-repeating FRBs so far, and research into their origins has been confounded by the study of repeating FRBs. This is due to the fact that the former are often attributed to catastrophic events which are incapable of repeating. In the case of FRBs, these catastrophic events include magnetar giant flares, the collapses of magnetized supermassive rotating neutron stars, binary neutron star mergers, binary white dwarf mergers, collisions between neutron stars and asteroids or comets, collisions between neutron stars and white dwarfs, and evaporation of primordial black holes. So lots of theories. Alternatively, in the case of the repeating FRBs, various models suggest that these could be caused by highly magnetized pulsars traveling through asteroid belts, neutron star white dwarf binary mass transfer and star quakes of pulsars. For the sake of their study, the team proposed a new model whereby the build-up and collapse of matter on certain types of neutron stars, aka strange stars, could explain the behaviour of FRBs. As they explain, it has been conjectured that strange quark matter, a kind of dense material composed of approximately equal numbers of up, down and strange quarks, may have a lower energy per baryon than ordinary nuclear matter, such as 56Fe, so that it may be the true ground state of hadronic matter. If this hypothesis is correct, then neutron stars may actually be strange stars. According to this model, strange stars build up a layer of hadronic normal matter on their surface over time. And as these SQM stars accrete matter from their environment, their crusts become heavier and heavier. And eventually this leads to the crust collapsing, leaving a hot and bare strange star that becomes a powerful source of electrons and positron pairs. These pairs would then be released along with a large amount of magnetic energy over a very short time scale. There's more, of course, but it's a very interesting hypothesis which awaits verification, possibly by more sensitive instruments being developed by the SKA in South Africa and Australia and by the new CHIME instrument in British Columbia and possibly even from the Malonglo instrument that's just been refurbished up in New South Wales. Watch this space. And finally, 
the fabulous three-day ABC BBC AAO stargazing event in Australia. The audience of Stargazing Live on ABC TV has discovered at least one new supernova, an exploding star, as part of a citizen science effort launched on Tuesday evening. Thousands of citizen scientists supplied more than a million new data points in a matter of hours, helping to classify 18,000 images from a SkyMapper telescope at the Siding Spring Observatory. Four of those participants identified a flash of light emitted from a galaxy 1.1 billion light-years away. Then, in the small hours of Wednesday morning, the Anglo-Australian telescope at Siding Spring took time out of its current assignment to turn and stare at that galaxy, catching some of the explosion's afterglow. It was that observation that allowed astronomers to confirm that the flash was indeed a Type 1a supernova. One of her four discoveries was Pip Newling from Sydney. She said it was ridiculously exciting to be part of the surprisingly rapid progress made by the project. I have to fess up, she said. It was probably a joint effort. Neither my boyfriend nor I can remember which one we actually hit. We were sharing the task, but I got the email. This is just the first finding to emerge from the Supernova Sightings Project, a worldwide project run by the SkyMapper team led by Anais Moller and Brad Tucker at the Australian National University and hosted by Zooniverse.org. You can go there. The initiative and its thousands of participants still have much more work to do and probably many more discoveries to make. 1.1 billion light years means exactly that, stargazing live presenter Brian Cox said. When that star exploded, there were no living things beyond the ocean on the Earth. The light was almost here when humans evolved, and it was very nearly here when we began to do astronomy. Then we invented television, and eventually we made a television show, and ABC viewers saw it last night. If it had happened a week later, we'd never have seen it. Great work from Professor Brian Cox, Julia Zemiro and the who's who of Australian and world astronomy. Congratulations. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave.